This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And a great fortune has been made by Elon Musk and the investors in Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays. But the cost of that great fortune to all of us is the spreading of hatred, intimidation, and causing violence by giving preferential treatment to the extreme far right and fascists on the social media platform. Any alternative to reactionary racism, sexism, and bigotry of all shapes and sizes seems to have been cut off from having their messages seen or heard. Followers who have signed up to the platform to hear from the people they find interesting and important are instead having those voices silenced on their timelines. With the presidential election coming up only 13 unlucky months away, this further to the right push by X, an X that is oddly far too easy to turn into a swastika, could have a frightening impact on who the winner of the 2024 November vote is and the politics that all the winners could be embracing, not just whoever wins the presidential election. In this Halloween season, if that's not scary enough for you, remember all the success the anti-choice crowd had at whittling away reproductive rights? Well, it looks like reactionaries are going to be doing the same thing, the exact same thing, to those seeking transgender rights. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with ex-evangelical writer, editor, speaker, and advocate with a focus on religion, politics, and secularism, Chrissy Stroop, who posted the op- or sorry, Open Democracy writing, Twitter's death will shape the 2024 U.S. presidential election. People forced to give up on truth amid a deluge of fake news are more easily manipulated by those with power. Chrissy also recently posted Republicans use anti-abortion playbook to restrict trans health care. Red states are using old anti-abortion tricks to limit access to trans health care without passing outright bans. Chrissy is a regular columnist at Open Democracy. She is a prominent voice in the ex-evangelical community, a term I absolutely love, and movement working with both secular and religious organizations toward the common good. She is with Lauren O'Neill, co-editor of the essay anthology, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. A senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches, Chrissy's work has also appeared in Day Magazine, Foreign Policy, The Boston Globe, Playboy, political research associates, and other outlets, including peer-reviewed academic journals. She has a Ph.D. in modern Russian history from Stanford University and is a senior research associate with the University of Innsbruck's Post-Secular Conflicts Project. Chrissy taught in a Russian university in Moscow from 2012 to 2015. That gave her what she calls a front-row seat to Russia's surging Christian nationalism and the rapid decline of that country's relations with the West. She explains that it was painful and difficult to watch, particularly as some people she considered friends went all in for what she describes as the revanchist madness. Find out more about Chrissy at her website, Not Your Mission Field, at cstroop.com, where you can also find a link to her Discord community. Support Chrissy on Substack at Bugbear Dispatch at bugbeardispatch.com. Subscribe to Chrissy on Patreon at patreon.com 
slash C Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P, and follow her on Twitter at C underscore Stroop. And I got to make a note right now to make sure I ask her about the effect of Russian Christian nationalism on the war in Ukraine. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, anything new by you? I haven't seen you for a while. Uh, you know, I just recently, uh, as in uh, half hour ago, driving down Devon Avenue, I uh, kind of darkly noted to myself that honorary Golden Meir Way has like mostly Arab stores in it. <laughs> and it changes yeah it changes from block to block over here it's the now i'm forgetting his name the pakistani independence leader it right. changed like it changes from block to block it's cool i mean it's uh i i like the honorary streets i, I do too but i just would say be consistent for the entire street <laughs> not from block to block change and uh my street doesn't it's a side street so we don't have an honorary name but do you think you can use the honorary name and actually get your mail delivered to that address? <laughs> I've always wondered that. We should first rally to get your street named after you. <laughs> yeah, let's not do and that. And then see what happens. <laughs> let's not do that. Uh, and the intersection where I live, uh, Arthur and Bell, is Art Bell. Remember the old guy who was <laughs> yes, the conspiracy that, theorist late that, at night on uh, Coast to Coast. Yes, yes exactly. When I moved into the neighborhood, I was like, oh my God, my, my uh, intersection is the intersection of two names that makes a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> hey, he got better ratings than I do. So what's new by me is I am about to be home alone again as my non-spouse, who's apparently an angel, is headed back downstate to help care for her ailing father. So I'm acting like a survivalist right now, a doomsday day prepper, making certain I have all the necessary provisions before she leaves town as I cannot drive and there are certain things I need that are either too heavy to carry while walking home from the store. You try to carry 40 pounds of cat litter from the store, let alone up three flights of stairs, or they're just not available within walking distance. But not only does my optic nerve myalgia make it so I am legally blind and therefore cannot drive a car, legally or safely, the complete colorblindness that comes along with it makes it so almost all refrigerated food looks the exact same to me, which means I'm labeling the food in our fridge and dating it to make certain I don't poison myself. I need to prepare to survive this looming end of my world, which should last for about, I don't know, the next 10 days or so, and I can go back to the normal of being blissfully clueless about what the hell's in my refrigerator. There's so many ways to contact us. Oh, well, first of all, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? It is, what is your favorite misleading and false binary? What is your favorite misleading and false binary? So there's so many ways to contact us, including by emailing Chuck at thisishell.com, messaging, messaging us through the This Is Hell Facebook page or the Welcome to Hellhole Facebook page or on Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays or by joining our uh, Discord community. And those are all the ways that you can answer this week's question from hell. And if you do, we will read your responses as we do with all responses, we'll read them on air. You can also connect with us by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell and subscribing to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can also leave your answer to this week's question from hell. Uh, and that's what uh, Patreon subscriber Adi did. He got in, con in contact with us uh, at Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Adi writes, hey, Chuck, I've got a guest recommendation for you. Dr. Saed Atshan. 
a Palestinian-American professor, has just written a powerful piece on the recent events in Israel and Palestine. Thanks for all you do. Adi. Adi then includes a link to a Truth Out article by Saed Etchan, an associate professor of peace and conflict studies and anthropology at Swarthmore College. The story's headline is, I wish Americans could see the humanity of Palestinians as they do with Israelis. A Palestinian American, as a Palestinian American, I am heartbroken to watch U.S.-backed war crimes unfolding in Gaza. So here's a snippet from the piece. Saed writes that while my family in the West Bank live in fear from soldiers and settlers, the reports from our friends and contacts in the Gaza Strip are nightmarish. U.S. leaders have been inciting Israel to inflict large-scale assaults on Hamas without regard for civilian life in a besieged and impoverished territory where half the population are children and most are refugees. Already there are reports of Israel's use of white phosphorus weapons and Israel's bombardment killing women, children, men, journalists, and medics, while Gazan hospitals are on the brink of losing power. Students and others in the U.S. who are attempting to raise awareness about the need for Palestinian rights and protection are being smeared, doxxed, and even fired by their employers. Certainly, anti-Semitism must be named, condemned, and combated with moral clarity. Syed reminds us the Palestinian freedom movement includes many Jewish and Israeli voices who are furthering solidarity between our communities and who are challenging the chilling of free speech on Palestine and Israel. He concludes, I hope for an immediate end to the bloodshed, the return of Palestinian and Israeli detainees to their homes, and building peace and justice for all in Palestine and Israel, which all harkens back to yesterday's interview with Ariel Angel of Jewish Currents and how the conflict in Gaza and between Israel and the West Bank and the occupied territories is shattering relations between Palestinians and Israelis who once worked together for peace. So you should go back and listen to that as well. So we sent a request to Saed and we are awaiting a response. Thank you, Adi. If you don't do email anymore and you hate Zuck and Musk and Patreon and Discord are just not for you for whatever reason, which are positions we totally understand because we are being throttled by most of those same platforms, Tell us what you think is the best way for the This Is Hell community to congregate online. In fact, we asked on Twitter how we can get out of those chokeholds on places and at places like Twitter. Granted, it wasn't a very good idea as Twitter is one of the places that has us in a chokehold with only about one in 40 of our followers actually seeing our posts. So it isn't completely surprising that we only got one response. George Bailey says we should just instead post on Telegram which I will be looking into this weekend. If you have any suggestions when it comes to a guest, as Adi did, or earlier this week we got a listener, who uh, David, who sent us a whole bunch of suggestions on topics, or, in a, uh, or you have an idea on a better platform to connect with listeners, please send those suggestions to us. And if you do, we will likely read whatever you have to say on air. Coming up, the death of Twitter sounds great, but what if it takes us all down with it? Plus, transphobia is learning from winning strategies in the anti-abortion playbook. Dan will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, and will tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Also, do you want to get back at big media? Do you want to annoy the hell out of the establishment, corporate, and public press? We will tell you how you can do just that, and how you can help out a huge friend of the show following our talk with Chrissy, live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything 
but the value of nothing. This is hell, and it would appear that we have forgotten the value of togetherness, democracy, peace, love, and yes, understanding. That is, if you spend any time on Twitter, which has turned into a cesspool that increasingly only benefits the furthest of the far right. Meanwhile, it appears transphobic hate mongers are going to be using the tactics of anti-abortion misogynists, here to scare the hell out of us, ex-evangelical writer, editor, speaker, and advocate with a focus on religion, politics, and secularism, Chrissy Stroop, posted the Open Democracy writing, Twitter's death will shape the 2024 presidential election. Welcome to This Is Hell, Chrissy. Uh, hi, Chuck. Thanks for that uh, rousing introduction. <laughs> I, uh, I really, you know, I, I didn't set out to scare people as, you know, my career, but, uh, you know, it's a scary time. And I'm a truth teller, so <laughs> kind of stuck with it. So you didn't get your PhD in frightening people? No, not specifically. <laughs> and PhDs get real specific. <laughs> yes, they do get very specific. That does sound like a dissertation, actually. So uh, this wasn't even going to be a topic that we were going to be discussing. And then when I was rereading your intro, it just made me think about this. What role does Russian Christian nationalism play in the war in Ukraine, because that's something we never hear discussed when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war, that Russian Christian nationalism has a, is a contributing factor. So what role do you think that does play in the war in Ukraine? Uh, it absolutely plays a role. And there's been a whole unfolding geopolitics around this uh, over really, well, certainly uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, where you have this ideological uh, sort of power vacuum. What's going to justify the new regime as soon as Putin comes to power? Um, I mean, to a certain extent, this is happening under under Yeltsin, but I think not so systematically. But un, but Putin immediately, you know, starts to um, embrace and empower the Orthodox Church over time. Uh, starts to concede certain things that were were you know unimaginable previously in uh, post Soviet Russia, like actually allowing some restrictions on on abortion. This is something that a lot of Americans probably don't know. But um, in the Soviet Union, where consumer goods were, were always an afterthought, and yeah, that's partly because, you know, we during the Cold War kind of forced the arms race and they had to continue spending lots and lots of resources uh, on nuclear arms and weapons of war and that sort of thing. Um, consumer goods, there weren't a lot of them. So for birth control, you know, a, a lot of Soviet women just didn't really do birth control, and they would get on average about five abortions um, throughout their lives. So uh, restricting that, even in post-Soviet Russia, was almost unthinkable, even though, you know, the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox churches and all Orthodox churches' official position is, yeah, abortion is a sin. Uh, but recently we've seen that start to shift. And, and then, you know, more recently... As Ukraine and Russia started to be at odds with one another since the Orange Revolution, uh, there has been church rivalries as as well going on there. And the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, who is considered first among equal in these various Eastern Orthodox churches that are in communion with one another, uh, eventually recognized a Ukrainian Orthodox church as independent from the control of Moscow. That's a big step. Uh, Moscow was really mad. And um, what happened was that then there was a schism among the Orthodox churches. And so the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, it certainly represents the largest population of Orthodox believers in the modern world. They think they should really be in charge. 
and that Constantinople, you know, it's it's just a little part, you know, the, the patriarchate there is just this little part of Istanbul. It's not um, located in an Orthodox Christian power. And so there's this geopolitical rivalry already going on. Um, and, and actually a schism among the Orthodox churches that has broken out in recent years. And then when the actual war broke out, uh, we, we do see this playing out there too with Russian priests blessing weapons, all kind of stuff that now, you know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously not a priest or a theologian of any kind, but um, my understanding of Orthodox Christian canon law is that you probably really shouldn't be blessing weapons and, and priests are not supposed to, you know, go to war, but certainly we, we see a lot of this sort of nationalist use of Christian imagery, embrace of nationalism by the church. The Russian Orthodox Church has had, um, I mean, to be fair, it's had a very hard time in, in modern history. Uh, a lot of people don't know, though, that after the initial push in the Soviet Union uh, to pretty much destroy and decimate the church infrastructure and any kind of religion, during World War II, Stalin actually made a sort of secret agreement with the leaders of the Orthodox Church who were still around that, uh, you know, this is after, of course, the, the Great Purge of the 1930s when a lot of priests were just dragged out somewhere and shot. Um, he said, if you support the Soviet side in the war now and you pray for our victory over the Nazis, we'll let you rebuild some, you know, theological, educational infrastructure, uh, seminaries and stuff after the war. And he held to that. And of course, the um, the bargain was that then, you know, the 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 bishops, uh, high-ranking church officials, they would participate in these international uh, ecumenical bodies, right? And they would um, report back to the KGB, obviously, and uh, essentially tow the Soviet line abroad and say, oh yeah, we have freedom of religion in the Soviet Union, everything's great. I mean, the fact is that being religious was still a career killer for anyone who had any ambition in the Soviet Union outside the church. But so you had this relationship reestablished, which has kind of always been the case in, in the Russian Empire before, that the church was pretty much subordinate to the state and could be used to the, by the state to up to support the state's goals, which is very weird and, and tension ridden in the Soviet context, where the official Marxist ideology is obviously atheistic um, and even anti-religious. But so those those patterns kind of continued through Soviet times. And then in post-Soviet times, the church suddenly has a lot more influence again. And these these church international bodies and these meetings between clergy, I mean, they actually there is a kind of shadow diplomacy there that is often overlooked by political scientists. And I, I do think it's important. So sorry, that's a really sort of long rambling answer. But uh those are my initial thoughts. <laughs> we love long rambling answers here on This Is Hell. That's why we do these long form in-depth interviews so people don't limit their imagination just to sound bites. So is there a parallel to U.S. Christian nationalism? We've been hearing about this rise of the far right over the last 15 to 20 years globally. Is the real thing that's right? How much does that Christian nationalism propel that rise of the far right, not just here, not not, not just in you know uh, the United States, but globally. Uh, it is it is very much a factor, and you know just another one of these sort of weird images that sticks in my mind from you know the last decade or so is when Franklin Graham, you know, son of evangelist Billy Graham and 
even more of a firebrand than Billy Graham. I mean, Franklin Graham is, is the person who, you know, called Islam a very evil and wicked religion and has said very inflammatory, you know, anti-LGBTQ stuff. Well, he went to Moscow in 2015, and there's a picture of him shaking hands with Putin. And, and at that time, uh, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, declared that Franklin Graham was uh, a confessor of the faith. This is weird because obviously Franklin Graham is an evangelical Protestant. They're not; These are not churches that are in communion with one another. Um, but basically, Kirill was sort of saying, look, he hates gay people, we hate gay people, we can be friends. And in fact, there, there has been a lot of that going on uh, since the Soviet collapse. And, um, you know, many on the right didn't, did in fact foresee this on the far right. Uh, even David Duke had an apartment in, in Moscow for a while because he was, was looking at, you know, post-Soviet Russia and thinking, oh, there's a real potential for white supremacy over there. Um, the, I mean, the collaboration between far right wing creeps in the West and, and Russia has taken many forms. One of the major fora for this um, was previously called the World Congress of Families. Uh, it's it's now been sort of uh, rebranded and restructured into the um, th this sort of um, international organization for the family run by Brian Brown, who people may remember uh, from his time as president of the National Organization for Marriage, the anti-gay marriage group. Um, and so I started digging a lot into this, you know, while I was in Russia between 2012 and 2015, and of course I'd visited and stayed for somewhat, you know, extended periods in some cases many times before, and I also taught English there way back in uh, 2003 to 2004 for a year in Vladimir, Russia. So I've got a long history with Russia of, you know, direct experience, um, and with the Christian right, because I grew up in and as them and in fact, I first started getting interested in Russia through uh, <laughs> embarrassingly short-term youth evangelical mission trips to Russia that I went on in 1999 and 2000, uh, right when I was graduating from high school and starting college. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's been these collaborative uh, efforts and at times tensions, but it's it's I call it bad ecumenism. Basically, it's where you know right-wing Christians around the world sort of get together and uh, talk about pursuing what they see as uh, the good, which is really bad for everyone who doesn't, you know, fall into their uh, patriarchal, um, misogynistic, anti-LGBTQ, and often white supremacist uh, point of view. So they, they strategize internationally about uh, how to promote Christianity and and when they're doing this, they kind of, they kind of you know bracket their individual differences as Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, uh, and and they use international institutions, including the UN, various UN committees, uh, but also things like the um, the courts, the European Court of Human Rights, for example. There was a strange case in 2011 uh, called the Laozi case involving Italian public schools that displayed crucifixes, and in that case. The European Court of Human Rights uh, initially um, initially barred them from displaying crucifixes in public schools. They said that's not, you know, compatible with a secular uh, state. And um, and then there was an appeal, and um, it's it's been a while, so I'm forgetting exactly which ones, but I believe it was the European branch of 
the American Center for Law and Justice, Jay Sekulow's thing. Um, there were Christian right organizations that then, you know, wrote amicus briefs and and the court eventually overturned its ruling and, and said, OK, actually, I guess it is OK for Italian public schools to display crucifixes. Um, so, yeah, uh, World Congress of Families has been a place for these folks to gather, uh, strategize, share ideas and talking points about how to fight against what the, the sexual revolution, um, LGBTQ rights, abortion rights and so forth. And another place where, you know, we've seen so much damage done is uh, Victor Orban's Hungary, right? Um, so Christian nationalism is a major driver there. It's a major driver in the United States. Um, Orthodox Christianity in Russia becoming, again, kind of a, a key plank in Russian national consciousness has also made it an important legitimizing feature for the Putin regime and for, you know, all the steps further and further down the road of authoritarianism that Putin has taken. And certainly, you know, the right here is also um, looking to Christianity as a justification for its actions, trying to take rights away uh, from people like me, among others. <laughs> so so what what do we miss in our understanding of the far right and the rise of the far right when we see in the media, we'll see discussions, we'll see analysis, we'll see warnings about the rise of the far right. But they leave out the words Christian nationalist because uh, Christian nationalists would imply that they are far right. Far right does not imply that they're necessarily Christian nationalists. So what do we miss in our understanding when the media talks about the rise of the far right without using the uh, you know qualifier that they are also Christian nationalists? Yeah, I, I think we, we miss this whole piece of... Um, Shadow diplomacy, these, these international networks, the, the influences that they have, you know, who's going to visit whom at their Swiss villa when and what are they talking about? What is the World Congress of Families doing? You know, these these Christian organizations, they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of influence. They have powerful, wealthy, uh, influential people in them who have very close ties in some cases to government officials. I mean, one of the people who pops up everywhere in these networks is Alexei Komov. Um, and he is, is absolutely, you know, well-connected in, uh, in Putin's Russia. Uh, and he meets with like the, the Northern League, the far right, you know, group in Lombardy in Italy. He, uh, is the, there, he's the Russian point person. And I think the whole, uh, you know, former Soviet space point person for, uh, the World Congress of Families or the International Organization for the Family, excuse me. Um, and and ultimately, yeah, it's the, the, the Christianity of this, uh, the, the role of the churches, I, th I think we do tend to underestimate it. And I think in part it's because uh, political science has really kind of just swallowed whole the, you know, uh, early to mid 20th century secularization theory that religion just becomes less relevant over time. Um, but in fact, that's largely not true it's it, it's um it it varies there's not this linear path to modernity right in which religion disappears that that part is not a thing um and i think we 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 risk missing how much this kind of uh far right ideology can be used to uh, appeal to ordinary working people and to uh manipulate people 
because uh, someone who takes their church authority very seriously, uh, if, if they're told by a priest or a pastor that if they don't vote a certain way, it's a sin, they're probably going to vote a certain way. Or it's, it's easier to make people, you know, single issue voters if you um, if, if you invoke a moral dichotomy that you're re- literally fighting good versus evil, spiritual warfare. Oh, and then we would also be missing this entire um, new apostolic reformation and these Pentecostal and charismatic revivals happening um, in many countries in the global south. Uh, Brazil, for example, these are the people who elected Bolsonaro, right? They are evangelical Protestants. And, uh, you know, probably most Americans think of Brazil as very Catholic. Uh, It is, but it's been less and less so in recent years. And um, these evangelical Protestants are, um, if not necessarily, well, yeah, you, you, you could call them Christian nationalists. But the funny thing about these Christian nationalists is that they are also uh, you know, they they call people on the left globalists, right? Which is, of course, code for Marxist, which is, of course, code for Jew. But um, they're, they themselves are tied into these global networks to pursue the same goals. They They don't really want to just leave, you know, certain countries alone to be left wing. They're trying to fight to basically impose a patriarchal order everywhere. We are speaking with... Open Democracy columnist Chrissy Stroop, who posted, has been posting posts on a regular basis over at Open Democracy. Democracy. One of her more recent uh, pieces is Twitter's death will shape the 2024 U.S. presidential election. You write in that article that you believe the Democrats' chances in the 2024 U.S. presidential election are decent, given both that abortion is likely to be front and center, and that radical Republicans once again tried to shut down the federal government because they could not get their culture-warring priorities, specifically anti-trans attacks in this case, into a budget bill that could pass the Democratic-controlled Senate. In March, PBS NewsHour reported a majority of Americans oppose restrictions on LGBTQ plus people. Yet the latest PBS NewsHour NPR Marist poll shows support for such laws is growing as uh, many Republican state and local lawmakers pursue hundreds of bills targeting LGBTQ plus rights around the country. 43% of Americans now say they support laws that criminalize the act of providing gender transition-related medical care to minors, according to the latest poll, marking a 15 percentage point increase since April of 2021. About half of Americans, 54%, say they oppose such laws. Do you think the biggest issues in the 2024 presidential election are going to be those around culture wars, specifically abortion and transgender rights? Because on the one side, Democrats and uh, many analysts are saying that they'll get a huge boost from the Republicans' anti-abortion point of view and their overturning of Roe v. Wade. But at the same time, you'll hear many of those same analysts saying that uh, what could be detrimental in culture war voting would be the uh, further embrace that the Democrats have of transgender rights, as they would seem from this poll to be trending downwards. So do you think these are going to be the two most important issues of the 2024 election? It's going to be culture wars. It's going to be transgender. It's going to be abortion. And depending on how the public goes on those two issues, that will determine our next president of the United States or who wins in 2024. Well, let me say that I, I certainly I've, I have been watching for some time 
you know, the, the impact of all of these uh, anti-trans legislative initiatives, and I don't even think it's the passing of the laws that has the biggest impact, but it's the dehumanizing language, the rhetoric, the scaremongering that is used to pass these laws at the state level. Uh, and that injects this just really toxic um, rhetoric into our national discourse. Uh, and of course, um, you can look at a lot of this as sort of 80s satanic panic redux. Now it's focused on drag queens and transgender people um, specifically. But, uh, you know, this whole groomer rhetoric thing, um, it's, it is really uh, damaging. On the other hand, I think maybe it doesn't stick as much as it might have in the 1980s because now... Uh, you know, not only have all the, the Catholic child sex abuse scandals broken, but also many Protestant ones, right? So huge child sex abuse scandal uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention has come to light in, in recent years. Um, that being said, though, we are clearly seeing uh, through the use of sort of gateway laws that seem more reasonable to the general public, like targeting trans kids in school sports or bathroom bills. Uh, we've seen a shift to being able to pass ever more extreme state-level laws and, and the rhetoric getting out there, it's clearly having an impact. So I, I worry about that. I don't think it's likely to play as big a role in the national imagination as abortion. The overturning of Roe was clearly wildly unpopular. I, I, I do think that, you know, Republicans uh, in many of their races will try to make the race about scary trans people. Uh, that the Democrats supposedly love, you know, but um, I and, and they'll they'll want to deflect it from abortion uh, or try to stake out a seemingly more reasonable position on abortion, even though it's pretty clear that if they do have enough power at the national level, they'll pass a national ban. Now, will it be it probably won't be a six week ban, but a 15 week ban or something like that would be quite bad enough. Uh, and I think if the Democrats stick to that messaging, try to keep the topic largely to abortion, it will, in most races, you know, obviously there can be some differences at certain certain state and local races, but I think that's going to play well for them. We've clearly seen that even in states that are, are pretty solidly red in terms of who they vote for nationally, like Kansas and Ohio, uh, banning abortion is not popular. I think that's probably going to play bigger uh, in in terms of public consciousness, uh, people's motivations. But I also still think the, the economy does, you know, matter. These kinds of just sort of bread and butter issues uh, are also going to be on people's minds. And the economy trending somewhat better has to be good for Democrats, though I should say that, you know, a, a lot of people don't seem to really be feeling the recovery at this point. You also point out that while both factors, reproductive rights and government shutdowns, are likely to help Democrats in November 2024, there is bad news as well, particularly around social media disinformation and manipulation, which played a powerful role in the 2016 election. Now, after a brief period in which activists and politicians forced Facebook and Twitter to take some steps to limit political disinformation, mitigating the harm that it causes, things have taken a rapid turn for the worse. If activists and politicians actually forced Facebook and Twitter to take some steps to limit political disinformation, then how can it get worse? How can government and popular pressure make Facebook and Twitter worse leading up to next year's presidential election? Why will that pressure not be effective in the next 13 months in limiting the kind of hate speech we do see on social media? Uh, because they've backed away from those earlier commitments. 
and and they've you know made public statements to that effect. So uh, Facebook, Meta, Zuck, they they just don't care anymore. I don't think um, they're they're sort of taking a sort of look. We tried position, but this really isn't our responsibility. And um, I have personally cut Meta out of my life entirely. I didn't do threads. I dropped my Instagram. I dropped my Facebook. Uh, but, you know, we're always talking about who can reach the suburban women, right? Um, those suburban women, those soccer moms, wine moms, they are on Facebook. And, um, you know, over time, Facebook may well lose relevance. Um, it's still going to be very relevant for this election cycle. And uh, it's Facebook where the manipulation is often more subtle than on Twitter slash X um, Facebook's that, that that worries me a lot with the targeted uh, political ads, with the you know engagement model algorithms pulling people ever further down right wing rabbit holes. Same as people can do with YouTube videos that have, have been you know mentioned in the press a lot in recent years as something that can radicalize young men. Uh, I think that on on Facebook it's going to be a problem, and on you know Twitter or the site formerly known as Twitter. Um, under Elon Musk's ownership, um, they they simply have no commitment to fighting disinformation at all anymore. It might have been tepid before, but I do think it helped us in 2020 and 2022, um, particularly that people could uh, label tweets as providing directly sort of false information about elections. Um, Musk is, of course... Um, raising the visibility of people who pay $8 a month for the blue check mark. You know, um, I'm, I'm one of those quote legacy verified people that I, I, I got the check mark the, the old fashioned way. And, uh, I don't have it anymore because there's no way I'm, I'm paying that apartheid man, baby, as I like to call him, uh, a dime of my money. Um, he's also, you know, looking at starting to charge people just to stay on the site at all and floating this as a, a method of fighting bots, which it is not. Um, but I don't think they'll be charging ordinary users in most places before the elections. I think they're doing a pilot program in New Zealand and the Philippines, which why those countries? I just saw these headlines just in the last couple of days. I have no idea. No one. I don't know if anyone knows why Elon Musk does anything other than that he's a huge jerk. And he likes to piss people off, but why he picked those countries, I I have no idea. Over um, overnight, uh, uh, Elon Musk apparently, according to headlines that I'm seeing breaking, uh, has announced that he is going to charge one dollar a year for every new account, and uh, for you to be able to post or repost, it will cost a dollar a year for those new accounts. Do you think that's going to have any impact on the content of Twitter or even their bottom line, for that matter? Well, uh, maybe it's changed since earlier this morning, but I think that's a pilot program in only a couple of countries. Okay. So it's not every, not not everywhere yet. Uh, but either way, I mean, I, I do think that a lot of people just on principle will never even pay that man a single dollar. You know, I, I, I wouldn't. That would be it for, for Twitter for me. But assuming that we go into um, this, you go through this next election cycle where most people, where uh, Americans don't have to pay to be on the site, which I think is still what we're currently looking at. But I mean, a lot of people are still going to hang out there because um, there simply is no real replacement yet, even though Twitter clearly doesn't do what it used to do at the height of its, its usefulness. 
um, some of us still connect with certain communities and certain people there. That's why I'm I'm still there. I'm still kind of hanging on and I'm trying to grow a larger audience with my Substack and on Blue Sky and Spoutable um, and engage some through Patreon and Discord. But um, yeah, so people are there and, you know, uh, any of us, no matter how smart we are, um, you know, we might we, we might occasionally fall for uh, clickbait or simply false information going around. I mean, uh, you have to be vigilant uh, about that. I mean, the moment you think, oh, I'm too smart, I can't fall for it, is the moment you're going to get too confident and fall for it. So um, to the extent that there are still not right-wing conspiracy theorist people on X, um, we have to watch out for that kind of influence and um and i I think there are a lot of sort of you know just everyday people in the kind of mushy middle of the politics who will be there some of them paying eight dollars um and and possibly be manipulated by uh troll farms um by organized campaigns to spread disinformation and and part of the point of all this of course is to create a sort of politics of post-truth where it's so d- difficult to figure out what's really going on in a given situation that you stop caring. Uh, and truth gets to be defined by power. This is certainly how some uh, some strategists in the U.S. think. Uh, undoubtedly, Karl Rove, I would think Steve Bannon. Um, and it, it, it's definitely in practice what um, elite Republicans are, are doing. They're pushing us toward this post-truth politics, which uh, only serves to reinforce authoritarian uh, groups, uh, authoritarian movements, and authoritarian power if they are in power. And it's also, you know, a big part of the playbook in Putin's Russia, uh, where you have, you know, both, you you tend to have information control. Putin has really cracked down in recent years. I mean, you can't say that Crimea is Ukraine in Russia without risking getting arrested and facing serious criminal punishment for that. You can't criticize the war. You can't even call it a war. I think it's still a you know, special military action to denazify Ukraine uh, officially. So it's funny because the because the Ukrainian president is Jewish. Uh, you point out also that what does all this accomplish for the billionaire tech CEOs and right wing authoritarians who choose to unleash the trolls? To put it briefly, if people find themselves unable to sort through the deluge of BS in order to arrive at the truth. Some will give up on truth, which allows them to be manipulated by those with power. And you write of the deluge of BS and giving up on truth. This process has been quite transparent in the United States, where former Trump spokesperson Kellyanne Conway infamously coined the phrase alternative facts on national television. And President Trump's goon, Rudy Giuliani, also on national TV, literally stated truth isn't truth. To you, what explains the success of such statements when on their surface, they seem contradictory, akin to saying, this room I'm sitting in is not a room. <laughs> well, so when you're Kellyanne Conway and, you know, you're you're on TV defending Trump's statement that he had a bigger crowd for his inauguration than President Obama, which is just so petty and stupid and obviously also patently false, um... And she goes on there and says, well, the spokesperson, or who I think it was Sean Spicer, gave alternative facts to that, um, or maybe it was Trump himself, I don't remember exactly, but she said, you know, they gave alternative facts to to that, the fact that was just cited at her, uh, you know, by 
the newscaster that, look, this clearly uh, Obama did have a bigger crowd. But why are we arguing about crowd size in the first place? And is it a proxy for something else? It always goes through my mind. But, you know, um, she's what she's doing is is flexing her power and showing her submission to, you know, the 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 the, the leader, you know, this um, charismatic figure that um, fascists and other authoritarians tend to, to look to this cult of personality. She's saying, look, what Trump says is true is true, and that's the way we're going to look at it. And that is how, the attitude that a lot of people take at, at Trump rallies. They're living in a, in a world that is very uh, disconnected from reality, including in their QAnon conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. Um, often there are contradictions in the ways that they think, and they don't really care or try to resolve them. I mean, in their minds, Biden is both you know, this doddering old senile man who um, is clearly incapable of acting as president, but also some sort of secret vampire harvesting adrenochrome to keep him alive. And, you know, in that narrative, I mean, Biden has to be conniving and competent, right? So that's a contradiction, but they don't care. And, uh, And yeah, I mean, when Giuliani said truth isn't truth, these are the kind of statements that that kind of, uh, show their hand you know it's they're they're winking their uh, giuliani was basically saying that truth is something that we determine by um you know fighting and arguing about it and ultimately by who who has power gets to determine what what the truth is um i mean he's obviously not the most coherent or competent man himself at this point but again it's it's just flexing that muscle like look we'll tell you what the truth is you know you don't worry your pretty little head about it you point out that Twitter's democratic potential is gone. X has only democratic potential. Why do you uh, anti-democratic s- anti-democratic uh, potential? Sorry. Uh, why do you <laughs> see that as the case? Why couldn't the left do what the right has done, whatever that is, to compete with the far right on Twitter? A- after all, you know the beginning of Facebook, Twitter. We saw the successes, the supposed su- successes that were caused by those uh, social media platforms. Uh, people were saying that if it wasn't for those social media platforms, we wouldn't have had the Arab Spring, which is incredibly misleading and not true at all. But it's still at the same time, the uh, Arab Spring did benefit somewhat from these social media platforms. So why couldn't, as the right shifted social media over to their side, why can't the left do the exact same thing? Uh, You know, we can't, we couldn't do it the same way because it's unethical. Um, could we could we build something with the right kind of money to to fund uh you know a a, a nonprofit or maybe even a for-profit company with with that purpose maybe uh, i i will say that you know the the right in this country and and perhaps in large part because they do exploit christianity to to do it people's religion they get into to churches and yes i know you know Democratic candidates are always going to, you know, progressive churches and especially black churches and talking, but it's it's not that they don't get into the churches the same way. I mean, right wing white churches, they're they distribute voter guides that basically tell you who to vote for without saying vote for this candidate. But instead, they say, here's the candidate that is pro-abortion here and pro-killing babies right after they're born. You know, and here's the candidate who's who wants to ban that. Um, I used to distribute these kind of voter guides, so I, I know what they're like. Um they're, they really out-organize the left uh, in, in many ways, in many places. And I think we could get more organized, but we can't create troll farms. We we shouldn't be, you know, spreading disinformation. And, and I honestly don't think we would win at that game. 
uh, even if we even if we decided we're going to throw all all our ethics away, um, I just don't think we can compete with the Carl Roves and Steve Bannons of of the world um, in, in that area. And I think we have too many ethical qualms, you know, for the most part, to to try to do it in the first place. So we have to find another way. And the problem, in part, is that this sensationalism really appeals to. I mean, it gets people's eyes on it, right? And Maybe it doesn't initially appeal to everybody. Maybe some people are just like, "Whoa, that's weird. I'll take a look." Um, but you can you can sort of get sucked into some of these these narratives and these conspiracy theories. Uh, ultimately, I think this stuff would play much less well if, uh, as a country, as a society, we did much better in, in terms of providing uh, people with a decent living. You know, enough to to get by without having to be stressed all the time. Because when people are stressed, um, they often will turn to uh, scapegoats, conspiracy theories, um, things where they can can sort of shift the blame away from themselves. And in fact, you know, if we're talking about working Americans who are struggling, um, they're not to blame for the fact that they're struggling. I mean, things like our absurdly low minimum wage, our housing crisis, our lack of a, a, a very you know, functional or generous welfare state, though, that's to blame. Um, and I mean, what Republicans are very good and what authoritarians are very good at doing is shifting the blame to say, oh, you don't have enough. Well, it's those people over there. It's their fault. Or, you know, the real problem with our society is that trans people are going to the bathroom where they're clearly doing nefarious things. Um, distract, uh, give them give them someone else to hate, and they won't fight class warfare. I mean, it works, right? It, it it works very well. If you can get enough power to make people economically struggle, to make this society extremely unequal, then you'll have you'll have some people who uh, will turn to a sort of conspiratorial worldview and look to that strong man to uh, to save them. You also recently had a column at Open Democracy with the headline, Republicans Use Anti-Abortion Playbook to Restrict Trans Health Care. Uh, you write that after all, or you write that in uh, in that post, you point out that since the illegitimately stacked right wing Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade just over a year ago, older state laws placing unfair restrictions on abortion clinics have become less meaningful. And you add that some of those restrictions, including allowing only doctors to administer medical, aka medication abortions, even though uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioners are more than qualified, are now being used as a blueprint for new legislative efforts to eliminate gender-affirming health care for as many transgender adults as possible. Yes, you read that correctly. Adults, ever since right-wing states began banning age-appropriate gender-affirming health care for minors in 2021, trans people and LGBTIQ ad, uh, active advocates have warned that they were not motivated by any kind of concern for the children and would not stop at restrictions on minors if allowed to go further. So when I was uh, researching how transgender rights and healthcare are being viewed according to polls, the polls I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, uh, the focus seemed to be on children's access to gender-affirming procedures, which the majority of Americans, according to the surveys, opposed. Are concerns about transgender children not limited to children, but include adults who are legally allowed to make decisions for themselves. Are, ch are children and adults being conflated in the debate over transgender care? And do did you see that same kind of conflation happening when it came to reproductive rights? 
Uh, well, maybe not exactly the same, but well, let me say when you're fomenting a politics of moral panic, which is a very useful thing to do to achieve authoritarian ends, um, it helps to say you're trying to protect the children, right? Because people, when they think about, oh, my kids are threatened, they get mad. They they get ready to fight, right? People, parents, normal parents will do anything to protect their kids. Uh, and so some parents can become radicalized by uh, these these notions that there are these liberals out there who are who are trying to harm your kids uh, and go down that, you know, and maybe move step by step further down that conspiratorial rabbit hole. Um, but yes, it's never really about the kids, right? So abortion isn't about saving saving babies. Uh, in, in fact, when uh, Paul Weirich and Jerry Falwell Sr. and, uh, you know, those folks in their circles, the, the people who were eventually associated with uh, the Moral Majority and the Council for National Policy and the Heritage Foundation, were getting together in the 70s, you know, after Roe, when in fact, still in 1973 and after, for a few years, most uh, American conservative Protestants did not care. That, I mean, they, they they thought either abortion shouldn't be illegal in most cases or it wasn't a big deal to them. They were looking for a way to, to foment a moral panic and um, create a, you know, com a compliant sort of voter base and, and a movement around something that could motivate them. And what they were initially what they wanted, you know, was to continue to... Um, to fight for racial discrimination on religious freedom grounds, but that was becoming, we all remember the famous Lee Atwater quote, you know, by 1973, the mid-70s, that's, if you're overtly pro-discrimination, that's starting to hurt you, right? So you have to start coming up with other things. And what they came up with was, let's save the babies. And so they start talking about how abortion is murdering babies. Been incredibly effective. Uh, it, it helped lead to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and you know, they've never looked back since. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the pundits, punditocracy's kind of conventional wisdom um, was always that, oh, abortion is so useful for them. The, these, 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 these wedge issues, this anti-abortion politics is so useful that Republicans will never actually allow the Supreme Court to overturn Roe because they win elections because Roe exists. But that was assuming that, you know, the, the, the goal wasn't what they said it was, which is to to ban abortion, because it certainly became that. You know, as soon as people started believing, oh, abortion murders babies, um, then you know, I I mean, I grew up as a true believer in that. It took it took a long time to realize that the notion that abortion is murder is complete nonsense on on so many levels, through scientific arguments, through legal arguments, um, and so yeah, they did what they said they were going to do. And, you know, the establishment was taken aback um, and it, it worked because they said they were saving children. Uh, but the funny thing is, you know, these are the same people who support corporal punishment. These are the same people who obviously don't want to provide any help to children who are actually born. Um, and in fact, I would argue that, you know, the quote aborted baby is kind of the perfect victim for, uh, you know, right-wing activists who don't actually want to help people, except, you know, maybe other people who are exactly like them, because, you know, an, an, an aborted fetus can never talk back to you, right? Or, you know, a baby who was born because you banned abortion can never actually say, oh, hey, you, you know, you got that law passed. Thanks. That, that's the only reason I'm alive. They don't, they don't have a voice. 
Um, so children become this proxy, you know, they're, they're really, it's really useful to claim that you want to save the children. And, and you can take this and you can do more and more extreme things. So in the, in the case of using, uh, in the transgender case, you know, you, you start to inject uh, fear-mongering language and hateful dehumanizing rhetoric into the discourse uh, in things like bathroom bans or uh, school sports laws that a lot of people will say, well, that's reasonable. And, and, and then you just push and push and push. And so now in Florida, uh, Florida's SB 254, it's a ban on gender-affirming care for minors, but it goes way beyond just a ban on gender-affirming care for minors, and in fact has ended up cutting, on some estimates I've seen, perhaps 80% of transgender adults in Florida off from their hormone prescriptions and other care. And, and the reason is that um, as with most most abortions, which occur relatively early on and can be induced by medication, and it's not a big deal, and you don't need a doctor to do it, um, administering, uh, you know, hormone replacement therapy for trans people is also something that doesn't require a doctor's training to to do. A nurse practitioner uh, is qualified. A physician assistant is qualified, and. Uh, so in in most places, you know, it's getting it's getting harder and harder to get access to directly to a doctor or to a specialist. Uh, so in Florida, as in as as pretty much I think everywhere in the United States, most trans people were getting their hormone prescriptions um, through a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, and um, they were often having telehealth uh, consultations rather than office visits, uh, which is also something that started to really be encouraged during the pandemic. And now both those things are illegal under SB 254. Uh, you have to go in person. You have to see a doctor. And 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 the page that they're another page that they're taking specifically from the old anti-abortion playbook is that you now have to sign a consent form that has disinformation on it. And 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 so one of the laws, well, not only one law, but it's obviously a lot of different state laws, but they were modeled on each other. You know, one of the issues that many uh, people face if they're seeking an abortion in uh, in red states, or or they did when those abortions were still legal, was that you know you might have a waiting period, you might have to get an ultrasound, you might, and you would have to be you know given false information. You would have to sit there and be told that oh you know abortion does increase your risk of breast cancer, and also most women who have abortions regret it. Those those statements are outright false, but you know many many women going to seek abortions. They have to, they have to basically sign a statement that says, "Okay, I heard, I heard the, this, you know, informed consent, even though it's actually disinformation." Uh, the same thing now happens in Florida with uh, trans care. So you now have to sign a consent form that says that the care is experimental and speculative, uh, rather than that we have, you know, decades of good evidence about this. Uh, so to get care at all. You have to get into a doctor who who will prescribe hormones, and that's getting more difficult to do because, in part, because of a chilling effect, but also because of a lack of doctors uh, in Florida. And I'll tell you, you know, endocrinologists and, and doctors who specialize in the treatment of uh, trans patients in Florida, they're really scared at this point. They don't want to talk on the record. It's hard to find someone who will. The people who who do prescribe gender affirming care because it's so fraught in in Florida. So this is a terrible step forward, and I mean, of course, it's uh, it happened in Florida, right, which is kind of the the lab of, you know, far right dystopian policies uh, under Ron DeSantis. 
Um, but they also tried to pass a similar law in Texas. It didn't pass this time around, but it could in the future. And I expect we'll be seeing more of this. So more of these phony restrictions that we don't need. They definitely hearken back to the, the trap laws, the targeted restriction of abortion providers. It's the same blueprint. And the great thing about that, from the point of view of the people who want these laws in place, is that, you know, you don't ban something, but you make access to it basically impossible. And so it's easier to challenge a direct ban in the courts, although I think with this Supreme Court, that would likely fail, uh, than it is to to challenge a law that just says, oh, look, we're just trying to protect people. We're just trying to protect kids. Um and I mean, in the court of public opinion, too, if you say you're trying to protect kids, it's easier to make your case. You write that to add insult to injury, the Florida, the new Florida law also requires trans patients to sign consent forms that are riddled with disinformation, including false assertions that gender affirming care is speculative and grounded in limited poor quality research. You add, this is another old trick from the right's anti-abortion playbook. Abortion providers in Republican states are sometimes legally required under informed consent laws to tell patients that people who have abortions are at heightened risk of poor mental health outcomes and or breast cancer, even though both claims are demonstrably false. Is it not only legal for doctors in Florida under the new law to lie to their patients, but by law, they must lie to those seeking care because the Hippocratic Oath, which is supposed to guide all doctors, uh, you know, uh, states and the, the physicians pleasure uh, to d prescribe only beneficial treatments uh, according to his abilities and judgment to refrain from causing harm or hurt and to live an exemplary personal and professional life. The basic principles are beneficence, non-malfeasance justice and respect for the patient's autonomy with its two rules of confidentiality and veracity. The Hippocratic Oath specifies <laughs> the principles of beneficence and non-malfeasance and the rule of confidentiality. Violation of these codes by doctors will result in disciplinary proceedings, including the loss of license to practice medicine. Despite the more comprehensive and modern day professional codes, the Hippocratic Oath is still used, perhaps for the sake of prosperity, but still. Does the Florida law violate the Hippocratic Oath and make it so physicians not only lie to their patients, but they must lie to their patients? Yeah, it does. And so that's a good point. I mean, to think that this actually, yeah, requires them to violate the Hippocratic Oath. But of course, the Florida State Board of Medicine is the relevant credentialing body, and it's been stacked by Ron DeSantis with his fellow you know, right-wing traditionalist Catholic cronies who are, you, you, who are you know, basing their views on ideology rather than actual science. So they clearly won't lose their licenses for it in Florida. But, but um, you know, it does create an ethical conflict for people in a profession where, you know, ethics is a very serious consideration. And, um, you know, from some limited anecdotal experience talking to people in, in Florida, it does seem to me that doctors there who who are involved with this sort of healthcare are definitely scared. You know, it's, sometimes it's just enough to create that chilling effect and you end up limiting access to care because providers don't want to deal with the potential fallout of providing it. So yeah, it's 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 hell. I mean, <laughs> they've created an impossible situation. <laughs> so Chrissy, just two more questions for you. First, one of the responses to children seeking gender affirming health care or transgender people using public bathrooms or transgender kids participating in school sports has been, 
that all of those instances are very limited and greatly exaggerated by those who are anti-trans, transphobic, and op openly express their hatred for transgender people. Are those instances exaggerated? And more importantly to this question, is pointing out that they are exaggerated in number and incidence in the U.S. a good defense for transgender rights? <laughs> well, they definitely are exaggerated. I don't know if it's a good defense in the sense that it will be an effective defense, but I also don't know what would be better. I mean, trans people are in a pretty bad spot in America right now. But I mean, yeah, in some cases, I mean, just beyond exaggerated. Like, there are, there, I don't, I don't believe there's any documentation of, you know, trans people, trans women going into women's bathrooms to, you know, uh, take, you know, clandestine, uh, illegal photographs or anything like that. You know, this is, this is the sort of thing that, you know, it seems like that the people who use this rhetoric often men think, oh, gee, I wish I'd thought of that when I was a teenager. If I just put on a dress and go in the bathroom or, you know, the locker room, I could have seen all the girls. Transgender women don't think that way, right? We just want access to the spaces. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's creating, there's, you know, why I called my Substack the bugbear dispatch is because, you know, bugbear is kind of a byword for things that people are afraid of that don't really exist or they shouldn't be afraid of. Right. So it's a, it's, it's a bugbear, you know, this is just something that you use to scare people. Um, but that has, you know, no more reality than the, um, the, the supposed like ghost who lives in the barn behind your house or something, right? Like it's, <laughs> It's a phantasm. One last question for you, Chrissy. We have been speaking with ex-evangelical writer, editor, speaker, and advocate with a focus on religion, politics, and secularism, Chrissy Stroop, who posted the Open Democracy articles, Twitter's death will shape the 2024 U.S. presidential election, as well as her article on reproductive rights, which you can find by going to Open Democracy and clicking on Chrissy's name. You can also support Chrissy on Substack at Bugbear Dispatch at bugbeardispatch.com. Find out more about Chrissy at Not Your Mission Field, Chrissy's website at cstroop.com, where you can also find a link to her Discord community. Subscribe to Chrissy on Patreon. Show your support for her work at patreon.com slash cstroop and follow her on Twitter at c underscore stroop. Our final questions for a final question for all of our guests, I promise Chrissy, is what we call <laughs> the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that tellingly. In its ruling, the 11th Court cited the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which overturned Roe, to argue that access to gender-affirming care is not a protected right because it is, quote, not deeply rooted in our history and tradition. Chrissy, does that mean anything that is not understood as deeply rooted in our history and tradition will be restricted, if not limited, because slavery is deeply rooted in our history and tradition, which would imply <laughs> by this decision that it would be allowed. So to you, what does it mean for our future if we cannot do anything that is not understood as deeply rooted in our history and tradition? Yeah, well, I mean, it would clearly mean that we go back to a uh, very, uh, very unjust 
America, in which white men are at the top of the social hierarchy. White, straight, cis, heteronormative, you know, men. Uh, and everyone else is a second-class citizen. I mean, that's that's where they want to take us. And so they try to come up with these phony originalist arguments um, or, you know, this this kind of reading of the Constitution means what it said at the time and you can never change it. Uh, and so Sam Alito, you know, uses this language of deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. So what I think is we simply need to reject that standard. And also, you know, Democrats need to find the spine to fight for um, expanding the court to re to reestablish fairness. I don't know why we don't talk about that more. I mean, I do know that I think the establishment strategists think that it's too dangerous politically. But I certainly hope that maybe we can push for that again if uh, if we do win in 2024. Uh, Biden seems to be genuinely against it, though. And I mean, honestly, that doesn't surprise me from a man who's like, oh, yeah, Jesse Helms, my good old friend, the segregationist. Um, I really wish he would stop that. <laughs> you know, like this, this does not play well with the kids anymore and not just the, and not just the kids. But um, yeah, we, we, we need to fight harder. We need to reestablish fairness on, on the court. I don't think it's a legitimate position. I mean, I, I don't think it. I think the only the the only reason someone really makes a quote originalist argument is to try to maintain uh, an unfair, unearned social hierarchy for a certain class of people. I mean, otherwise you have to you have to realize that okay, how we understand this document has to evolve, and it has evolved, and we can amend it. And you know, honestly, I think we could use a lot of amendments to the Constitution to to make uh, our politics more fair. But of course that's very hard to do so i i think i think ultimately we need big structural changes in america we need to eliminate the electoral college we need to make dc a state maybe we need to get rid of you know every state has the same number of senators because or either that or we have to get rid of the filibuster in every case because all of this you know plus gerrymandering and voter suppression at the state level uh states being able to control their electoral processes uh, more than they could under the previous understanding of the Voting Rights Act. You know, um, all of this just so, sort of works together to give the right uh, disproportionate power. It's unfair. They've stacked the court in an illegitimate way. I consider the current constitution of the Supreme Court illegitimate. And I don't want to, you know, diss the good people on the court, you know. But obviously the supermajority is illegitimate. And it, it ought to, uh, we ought to do something about it. And, I, and you know, that if we could, that would be our best chance of avoiding um, right-wing, you know, uh, patriarchal, white supremacist, sort of minority authoritarian rule going ahead. Uh, but that obviously that's a tall order. Yeah, a very tall order. It's kind of hard to tell people that, you know, we're on a slippery slope towards apartheid with a minority rule unless we do something about it and do something about it now. And you're not going to hear that word or that kind of conversation come up during the presidential debates. Chrissy, I no, really... but I will say quickly, if I may, the, sure. the, the strikes are, you know, giving me some hope. Yes. Know, people need to get in the street. Yeah. And, and make these, make everything a big deal. And if we, if we take that people power back at the grassroots level, maybe we can trickle it up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Any, anyway. Yeah. Don't, 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 <laughs> uh, you know, cross the picket line. You should be joining the picket line. Chrissy, Absolutely. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. Biggest mistake you ever made was giving me your email address. So I'll be bugging <laughs> you in the future. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chrissy. Really appreciate it.
My pleasure, Chuck. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask on this show were written while I was high. This is hell if Chrissy's take on the death of Twitter being a lot worse than it sounds and her revelation that the anti-women's rights crowd is now using the same tactics against those who are transgender support completely listener supported this is hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which goes live this week on friday at 10 a.m chicago time and his podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on the word support by becoming a patreon member however not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online you also get a secret special code word that gives you a discount on all this is hell swag you now also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it's first announced on patreon and our newest feature every week whoever is producing chooses a question from hell for me Submitted by you, our Patreon subscribers, a question that I have not seen or heard or read until our producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding on what platforms are you going to be talking about today? Uh you tell me, Chuck. Uh, uh, pay, uh, think you know, uh, going with what you said earlier, uh, Twitter is or X is absolutely blank. Yeah, uh, kind of figured that. Crazy. Uh, what about on uh, Discord? Discord, we do have some stuff. All and right. I'll pop on over there. Um, this week's question from Hell is, what is your favorite misleading and false binary? And I'm... Um, the people, good people on Discord. Discord in our Discord community, yes. <laughs> yes uh, say <laughs> there's some good ones, actually. Let me scroll up. Um, Discord is weird. It's kind of like going to a portal. It's really odd. You know, there's a sidebar with different topics, and, and I don't know. It's just kind of weird and clunky, and at the same time, it works really well to keep get in contact with people. Yes, <laughs> and... Uh, it is a little clunky. Uh, <laughs> it is. As, as, I as you're say, finding out right yes, now. Exactly. Uh, but uh, the question answers to what is your favorite misleading and false binary? Mark A says solids or stripes <laughs> okay. in pool. <laughs> All right. And Kim G says to be or not to be. <laughs> that's a good I one. Like that that's one. a very good one. Yeah, uh, that's it. For, and, and nothing yeah. over on Twitter. So we will yeah. get to all the stuff over on Welcome to the Hellhole tomorrow on during tomorrow's show. But as always, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it at our Patreon account. You can post it on Discord. You can post it at our Facebook page. Uh, again, our group page, which is uh, Welcome to the Hellhole. The person with their favorite answer wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. But again, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present when Seb gives us the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of the present and what is will talking about this week dan seb <laughs> will, will uh i said dan 
Emmett said, Dan, I'm looking at my <laughs> No, you thinking. said, what is Will talking uh, no, about yeah, this no, week? What is Seb talking <laughs> about this week? Well, I always, I'm all like, over the place. I always like hearing from either of them. Yes, so exactly. Seb is closing the book on the Chinese dynastic era and sharing some difficulties that Chinese that recent Chinese history presents. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question. Not about recent. Also. I threw in the recent. Sure. Sorry. Uh, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. So years ago, well, first of all, I was mentioning earlier how you can get back at the media. So let me explain. Years ago, from 2011 until 2014, this is how dominated the Chicago Reader's Best of Chicago poll as each year for four consecutive years we were voted best morning show on Chicago radio. With listener support, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, that's me, was voted best journalist and best radio DJ for two of those years consecutively. And man, there were people in Chicago media that were very, very, very unhappy about it, including a beloved local media celebrity who would always, when the mic was on, humbly insist they never wanted any public recognition. Yet when they did not win the Chicago radio poll, radio poll and learned that I was the person who was named best radio G DJ, they publicly screamed at me, yelling at the top of their lungs in my face, not allowing me to get in a word, outraged that they did not win and more so that they were beaten by someone on a community radio station instead of the kind of corporate outlet where they worked. The weirdest thing about it was they had no idea what this is hell was or who I was other than they had not gotten the recognition that in reality they believed they deserved. The whole thing made me feel just really slimy and gross like every other experience I've ever had with radio hosts or anyone in the media industry. It reminded me yet again that the vast majority of people in the media are driven by a desire to be a celebrity, to have the fame of the people they cover. Self-identifying journalists ditch any ethics they have to rub elbows with the rich and powerful, go to the same cocktail parties and black tie affairs for charities that are approved by the wealthiest and do nothing to challenge the structural inequality that we exist within. For radio DJs, it's the musicians whose music they play. The DJ wants some of that glitz and glamour, uh, glamour to drip off of their heroes, their gods, so they can live vicariously or vampirically off their far more talented hosts, that being the musicians. It's a life of desperate begging to be seen and having your picture taken with whoever the star du jour is. You then can hang that photo in your office and put it in on your home mantle to impress business associates, friends, and family members. It's everything that grosses me out about being in the media. That's why we repeatedly say on the show, this is not the media, this is hell, because I don't want to work for the rich and powerful. I have no interest in being one of their approved celebrities. I don't want to get famous and be the kind of person who... Already famous, one of the ratings leaders in the market, making a very comfortable living, is suddenly screaming publicly at a bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host because the readers of a free weekly paper that nobody, frankly, actually reads decided to name the poor slob best radio DJ. So, for the last 10 years, we have not asked for your vote in the Chicago Reader Best of Chicago poll because I saw it as 
bringing out the worst in humanity like celebrity and fame often do, including the narcissism, the egos that often come with being in the media, when all I want to do is just bring you the news, information, and views that the corporate establishment media refuses to discuss as their bottom line censors truly free speech. I view myself as a public servant doing a public service, not trying to get famous and be a celebrity. That same corporate establishment media where all the celebrities and fame seekers thrive at their corporate master's behest, and if you know their bottom line censors free speech, then you can probably guess that some bottom line cancels shows like ours, the people we talk to, and the perspectives they offer. The media machine gatekeepers only want wannabe celebrities to be delivering the news, interviewing guests, playing music, or even doing play-by-play or analysis during sporting events. They need sellouts who don't see their many conflicts of interest as conflicts of interest because they have no conflict with selling out for the interests of their exploitative and planet-destroying millionaire and billionaire overlords. But there still may be a way to get around the people who have stolen the public's airwaves and turned them into propaganda outlets for fascist Christian nationalism, prophets before people, neoliberalism, and flag-waving militants from which they benefit. And maybe that way to really piss off the media and those who have turned the press into nothing more than a vehicle to boost their Q score, reflecting their success as a marketable product and not so much as an actual living human being. So this year, we're going back to asking you to vote for This Is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best under the city life category. So you go to chicagoreader.com slash best. You'll see a few categories. One is city life. And there you go to vote for This Is Hell as best podcast. And under best radio DJ, vote for Chuck Mertz. So city life, best podcast, Chuck Mertz, or best podcast, This Is Hell, city life, best radio DJ, Chuck Mertz, all at chicagoreader.com. Chicago, hello, chicagoreader.com slash best. Let's see if we can get another very successful and very rich local celebrity to be upset with us for daring to challenge their superiority that must be recognized at all times, despite them telling everybody, oh, I don't want any recognition. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Then go to City Life and vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast. And me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live stream host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, as the best radio DJ. While you are there, please show love for Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. If it wasn't for Carrie's, I seriously doubt I would be speaking to you at this moment. We cannot show them enough thanks for everything they have done for This Is Hell over the years. While there are only two categories under City Life to vote for This Is Hell and Me, Best Podcast and Best Radio DJ, respectively, there are three different places where you can vote for Carrie's Lounge. You can vote for Carrie's under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and under Music and Knife Life for Best Neighborhood Bar and Best Dive Bar. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Vote under the category City Life for This Is Hell is Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, for Best Radio DJ and vote for Carrie's Lounge under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and under the Music and Nightlife category 
for Best Neighborhood Bar and Best Dive Bar. I can promise you that if we are named Chicago's Best Podcast or I am named Chicago's Best Radio DJ, it will not go to my head, but it will get in the head of local celebrities who are going to be really, really pissed off. Voting is only open until November 7th. Then they go to the final round after that. So vote early, vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz, and Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com slash best. Dan, who is coming up as our next and final guest of the week here on This Is Hell. Tom Dispatch contributor Karen J. Greenberg returns to This Is Hell this time. Karen joins us to discuss her latest article, Closing Guantanamo. Yes, a snail's pace, but a pace. No moment of truth this week from Jeff Dorchin, but we will have a past inside the present with Dr. Sebastian Vopper that will be completing this week's show. Uh, and Dan already told you what Seb's going to be talking about this week. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Yes, there is This Is Hell office hours this week, as there is every Wednesday evening at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge. 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. But, but as I uh, will try to be responsible in my drinking, and I never am, and I need to be ready to talk about Guantanamo for 45 minutes tomorrow morning with an expert on the subject, office hours are happening a bit earlier, beginning at 5 p.m. and going until around 8. That's This is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drink and think every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. A one-of-a-kind neighborhood, unlike any other neighborhood in the city. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.